dream. Don't give up your dreams and let your life take over. If you have a dream, go for it. Barry turned 76 in July. I turned 73 in May. And, you know, every once in a while we go, I think we're old. But are we? Hello, I'm Ben Shaw, and you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. In fact, you're listening to the 100th episode of the podcast, and so I'd like to just stop and thank all the listeners and guests who've made the show possible over the past three and a half years, not to mention my wife Lauren and my daughters Nora and Alexandra who've allowed me the time to do interviews and mix audio. The show continues to be purely a labor of love and a joy to do, and I'll keep at it as, as long as I'm having fun chatting with interesting people and sharing their stories. And knowing that you and other listeners out there are enjoying the conversations too is really icing on the cake. So keep the comments coming to me at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I love hearing what you think of the show. Today's conversation is a special one because a couple months ago I spent a really lovely evening at the Emeryville Marina aboard the Rosie G, an innovative new boat that came from the mind of Barry and Samantha Spanier, was designed by Jim Antrim and built by Cree Partridge and his yard, the Berkeley Marine Center. All of these folks are friends of the show, and it was a treat to sit in the doghouse aboard the Rosie G and talk with Barry and Samantha about the boat's conception, its construction, and the coming sea trials. But first, a word about our sponsor, Shearwater Sailing, a sailboat charter business run out of Monterey Bay by Kevin Wasbauer. Shearwater Sailing's flagship vessel is a very special boat. She's a fully equipped FAR-53 named Atalanta. Atalanta is a racing machine, but don't take that to mean she's uncomfortable, because she's not. She's a fun and fast boat, but also very safe and very well appointed with a beautiful, comfortable interior, not to mention a cockpit with tons of room. On August 13th, Atalanta will sail south to Santa Barbara. You could join for the two-day trip down the trip back, or for the whole five-day adventure from the 13th to the 17th, which includes a lay day to explore the lovely beach town of Santa Barbara. Availability is limited for this August trip, so reach out to Kevin quickly. Now, one of the best things Kevin offers are customized offshore training trips, from boat handling to heavy weather tactics to anchoring to navigating. He can help you sharpen any of your sailing and seamanship skills. Of course, you can always book private sailing charters to just go out on the bay for a couple of hours or the full day, go wildlife viewing, and there's tons to see on Monterey Bay, or take a beautiful sunset cruise. Grab the opportunity to sail with Shearwater Sailing today. Reach out to Kevin directly by phone at 650-743-1389 or email him at info at shearwatersailing.net. Okay, now on to my interview with Barry and Samantha aboard Rosie G.
I am so excited to talk to Barry and Samantha because we are sitting here aboard the Rosie G. And the last time we spoke, this boat was just an idea in your head. That might have been on paper, too. Yeah, it was on paper, but yeah, that was a while ago. <laughs> so, a different subject. Let's, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's d describe, well, first describe where we're sitting and what's special about Rosie G. Rosie G started a long time ago as an idea to make a really simple, um, easily handled cruising boat that would have cargo capacity and shallow draft. And originally, the dream was to build it all out of wood or composite so it had no metal. That was like the, the first thing on the list was no metal. So, you know, if you built a Chinese junk, you could build a junk that had no metal. And we could have used composite rudder hangers and we could have had inside ballast that was metal, like, you know, lead pigs or something. But we were going to have inside ballast and really shallow draft and asymmetrical lee boards and, and a scow bow. Not, we, we didn't call it a scow bow then. It was more like a punt bow, like a junk has, you know. And I drew these pictures with a guy that sailed with me, a French sailor that I had gotten together with. And, and he was a fanatic for the junk rig. And, and he really convinced me that, well, this is a, a really good thing. You know, it's really cool that, how it works. And so the essential thing was you had a aft cockpit that you could fish out of like a fishing boat. And then you walked into the sort of major living space. And then down below was just open and it was a, a bachelor's dream, you know. You didn't need a lot of furnishings. <laughs> you could have just laid around inside, opened up this big deck hatch and, and you know, lived this kind of vagabond life. And that's what was the dream. But, you know, life kind of got in the way and I wrecked my other boat and, uh, you know, got back into normal life, life ashore. Well, I'm going to stop you there just for a second because in the pre the last time we talked and I highly encourage people to listen to that two-part episode where we talked about your last boat and the wrecking of that boat and the building of that boat and the wrecking of that boat and but that informed a lot of your ideas for this boat, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. And And that last boat was an Ingrid. The, the last 30, boat was an Atkin Ingrid, yeah, yeah, 38 feet. 38 feet. And I didn't like how it sailed very much, and, and it wasn't like I was happy to see it go, but it, it was, you know, something I wouldn't have done again. Yeah. And when we started thinking about this boat, it only took shape because Samantha said, go for it. Samantha, when you met Barry, how long did it take him before he raised the idea of this boat? Well, I've known Barry for 25 years, mm -hmm. and we, we've been married 13 years. So uh -huh. we had a long friendship before we got involved personally. Yeah. And I think it was around <clears throat> 15, no, maybe it was around 10 years ago, He we discovered the, the drawing, 
that he did back in the 70s. Yeah. And he said, geez, you know, it'd be really kind of nice to do this. And I said, if we're going to do it, I want you to do it completely. Um, you think totally outside the box. You have amazing ideas. You're extremely creative. Um, if, you, if you don't do exactly what you want to do, no matter what anybody says, then don't do it at all. Don't, don't spend the time, the money, the effort that it's going to take to do this. And so I gave him total, complete freedom um, to do what he wanted to do. And um, he took it and ran with it. And then we got Jim Antrim involved, and Barry can tell you about that. Um, but he did do that. He, he did not compromise his creativity, his ideas, his vision um, to achieve what he wanted to achieve. And we ha we're, we're sitting in the result of it now. Did you have full confidence that when he started that it would get to this point that he would I finish? had full confidence in him mm -hmm. because I had known him for so long and I saw what he was capable of doing. Uh, he, 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 he's a total visionary and he has an amazing mind that um, is going millions of miles an hour constantly coming up with great ideas that make other people heaps of money. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know? And he did that through his windsurfing career. The whole, you know, when he was with Maui Sales. Right. Um, so um, it was one of those things where, no, this is for him. Uh, and, and it has to be right for him. So, Barry, you probably just want to let Samantha keep singing your praises here. We can just let her keep going. We don't no, it works really anymore. good <laughs> when you're around home later, you know. <laughs> But I want to ask you about bringing your idea to fruition. Was there ever, what were the biggest stumbling blocks and the concerns? And did you have doubts when you said, I mean, when you thought outside of the box, this is not a boat that looks like anything, anything other, any other boats I, I know of? Yeah, well, that's, it, it started definitely like that. I mean, like I said, it had inside ballast, shallow draft, asymmetrical lee boards it was way different i mean it was yeah. different than this it, it was extremely it was different. more extreme yeah. outside I mean, I, more I was more inspired by this young guy i met in tahiti who had taken a 26 foot lifeboat in france and probably paid nothing for it and he coated the inside with black tar and put in some plywood floorboards and some lead pigs for inside ballast, and he had lee boards and a, a really simple junk rig, and he had sailed that thing from France. And just Leave it and to the French. Typical French. And, uh, you know, he was just an adventurer young guy, and, and he, he was younger than me, and I was only in my 30s, my early 30s. And this thing worked and he was he would just pull it up on the beach and you know he had obviously made good passages and he said oh yeah sometimes you know off the wind we can do 150 mile days and and but this boat was light in the water and light on its feet and it didn't you know it had a rudder only when he pulled up the leeboards he was just you know heading downwind yeah and so that kind of inspired me to think that way and Initially, when I went and talked to Jim, I had actually drawn this boat. I drew lines, and I drew a rig, and 
had a cabin structure and an interior plan and everything. You know, I showed all that stuff to him and said, what do you think? And he said, well, I'll think about that. And so not long after, he came back and said, yeah, I think I can do this, you know. Yeah, I just had a good conversation recently with Jim, and we talked a little bit about this boat. So what were the main changes that he made? He didn't think that the leeboard idea was that good because having that appendage, hmm. you know, that was potentially vulnerable. Yeah. And he didn't like the idea of the inside ballast because he thought you couldn't get a good stability level out of huh. that. You know, he thought that was risky. And he didn't mind the idea of the junk rig, and he thought that the whole layout idea was good. And he, this boat even has carbon fiber in the deck to have the original four-foot square opening hatch. So huh. that was the plan, was to make this four-foot square hatch. And well, Jim is an excellent materials guy. Oh, yeah. He's, a, so he's, he a, naval, he's a marine engineer. Yeah. Know? He's a carbon fiber expert. Yeah. So everything about this boat is the reason why I went to somebody like him is because he's designed bunches of weird boats. <laughs> I would love being in the studio and yeah. seeing the pictures of like boats up on stilts and rowboats. Oh, yeah. And I mean, giant inflatables. He yeah. designed a 20 foot inflatable catamaran, and he's designed record-breaking, fast trimaran that held a record San Francisco to Tokyo, I think it was, or something. Wow. And, and a lot of other really good boats that have been successful and have great speed. And, you know, if you want to go fast, he's he's a good guy. And yeah. it was, was it Cree who connected you? No, he, he connected with Jim? us with Cree. Because, oh, Jim connected you with Cree. Yeah, okay. Because Cree had built several other Jim Antrim designs. And Got he was it. in the process of building his own personal boat, which was a Jim Antrim design. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, we tried to find builders in Hawaii first. Because that's where you live, just yeah, for we lived in, Yeah, we lived in Hawaii, and it would have been nice to build a boat. We, we found a guy on Oahu, and they had just been put out of business by the EPA. And then we found a guy on Kauai, and, and he built really beautiful boats, but... He had just finished his own personal boat, and he said, I'm not building any more boats. I'm going cruising on the boat that I just finished. And, okay, so he wasn't in there. And, and the guy on the big island was too busy building boats that he normally built. And, and we thought about building it ourselves, you know, renting a warehouse. And, and I, I You've done that before. Yeah, I had done that before. <laughs> so I wasn't afraid of that, but I knew that building a boat in Hawaii, you just have to automatically add 25% to uh, the cost of the materials because everything is freight, you know. Yeah, so yeah. that I, we just said, no, well, let's try around. So we went to Westerly Marine in Southern California, and they were busy doing something for – Larry Ellison, and then we went to Betts up in Seattle, and he was building four carbon fiber cutters that were for some guy who wanted four identical weird boats, and he was busy, and there just wasn't anywhere that was really opening up, you know. Went to Navtech in Honolulu, and the same thing. They were so busy building the boats they designed and built that they just didn't want to get involved. Mm. 
So Jim said, well, why don't you try Cree Partridge, you know? And he's he's good boat builder. And so we set up a meeting and came over here and he said, okay, I'll do it. And that was it. For, for those listening who don't know Cree, go back and listen to the interview I did with him. He runs the Berkeley Marine Center and he's enabled a lot of wonderful boats, wonderful dreams and... Uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's an enabler. That's what yeah, I would call he is him. An, that's a great description. He, he loves to, to make things happen for people who are yeah. doing unusual stuff. You know, yeah. When Chris Burdish came through with his stand-up paddle thing, he kind of opened up and helped him out. And, yeah. and Jim just designed this uh, odd uh, pedal craft that this guy wants to go through the Northwest Passage pedaling this boat. And, and what was the little boat that was based off of the oh, mold the, of the your chubby dinghy? girl? The chubby girl, yeah. yeah. I talked to, to, to that gentleman whose yeah. name I'm blanking on now, right. but this tiny little boat he wanted to yeah. sail to Hawaii. It was going to be the smallest boat to sail yeah. to Hawaii. It was nine feet long. Well, I'm very pleased that I could be a small part of helping with Rosie G. Oh, yeah, because a big part. <laughs> After we talked the last time, you said, we started chatting after the interview, and I mentioned that I was bringing a, my parents' boat from the East Coast to the West Coast. And you said, you wouldn't have any room for a carbon fiber mast, would you? And so <laughs> we worked that out. And yeah, it was perfect. Was, yeah, it did work out well. Anyway, so we got our mast out here long before the boat was even put together, you know. Yeah. We were still building the tooling when the mast was here. I inspired you. Keep yeah. going, and 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 the and the other thing, the the keel is built by Mars Keel in Toronto, uh -huh. and Mars Keel builds all the keels for the sail drones. Oh, and so he was shipping nineteen sail drone keels out here. He just threw our keel on the truck. <laughs> That's and, great. And uh, our keel made it out here perfectly. <laughs> yeah, because sail, sail drones right over in Alameda. And now we have a really close relationship with the owner of Mars Keel. He came to Hawaii and went sailing with us on the Cornelia, and oh, we hung nice. out together, and nice. he, he's a great guy. Is Cornelia your Valiant? No. No, it was a West Sail 42. West Sail 42. Yeah. Okay, I'm uh, sorry. I, I, uh. And the people that own Cornelia now have taken, and they have done a complete upfit. She's got wind generator and masthead instruments and a freezer and a water maker and right. chart plotters and radar and yeah they just <laughs> this is all over the, her out, over the know? top for you huh oh yeah we didn't have anything <laughs> like that nothing so i'm really curious to talk about the scow bow because I was just listening to a podcast today, and, and somebody was talking about the mini transat boats that have a scow bow, and they're, yeah. the, they're the fast ones now. And mm -hmm. the, but this was an idea that you had in the 70s. Yeah, but it wasn't really like a scow bow. It was more like how Chinese junks look. Okay. And Chinese junks have generally have bluff bows or, or punt bows, they mm -hmm. call them. You know, it's like having a transom on the front. And... It's an easy form to build out of wood because you don't need to pinch the curves in or anything. It's it's a simpler form of boat to build. It's like an El Toro. You right, know, right. Really, really simple. So originally the concept, I'd never thought about even the word scowbell. You know, it was just a junk, you know. Okay. And 
the scow bow thing happened because it was easier to build was that your yeah. attraction to it yeah just because it was simpler to okay. create the form yeah know? probably then cheaper yeah and then those times i you know i had no money or nothing so it was more all just a dream you know okay yeah. we'll build yeah. a boat you know but when we started this one david raison who is a french designer he revolutionized the mini transat class which it's a class kind of and you know it's a rule boat it's uh 21 feet long and 10 feet wide and that's about the rule everything else goes <laughs> you know what size the rig is how big the rudder is how it can have a swing keel or a fixed keel or foils or anything so he shows up with this boat and it's got a full round scow bow and you know they have to do stability tests they flip the boats over and make them sure that they'll right themselves and they have to float laying on their sides for a while and all these other kinds of things that that's how they test the boats before they can be qualified and boy he just they mocked him and insulted him and flamed him out you know that'll never come this and then no, you'll never be able to go to weather and this is going to be and that's and then he just kicked their ass <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, he beat them really good. He beat them so good they outlawed the shape in the in the class rules. Ah, because all of them knew that they could no longer be competitive with that yeah. shape. And as soon yeah. as more people brought that shape into the class, that they would just be out the back. Yeah. So. Now the normal boats race with each other, and the scow bow kind race with each other, and it's more fair you yeah. know, and correct. And so right away, six other big classes outlawed the shape, including there was even mentioned in this year's the past America's Cup thing with the weird wings and uh -huh. stuff. You uh, know? The mono halls with yeah, the there was a definite place in the rules where it said you couldn't have a scow bow. What is the well, objection? I mean, I could go to an economic objection, which is if you had a TP-52 that cost mm -hmm. you $2 million bucks, and it had that normal kind of modern racing boat shape, which is very pointed in the bow and then going back to a big wide transom, kind of like um, Cree's glass slipper, you know, right. that same kind of shape, or, or rapid transit, you know, mm -hmm. that, that kind of shape, like California condor. Yeah. So that shape is threatened if all of a sudden you can have a scow shape that's going to be faster okay. and better. I mean, what are you going to do with so your TZ-52? existing entrenched, in, yeah, interests. You know, you're going to yeah. give it away because you can't, it's not competitive anymore, you know. So they just, oh, you can't do this. Yeah. So I think they did that in the, in the offshore that 60-foot class that they race in the lot, a lot of big ocean races and TP-52. And, and then um, there's a Class 40, I think it's called. That's where it's starting to creep in because they're cheating the rules by putting a little point in the front and uh, <laughs> making the bow meet at a slight angle, but it's still 
a big, a blunt bow. big scowl bow underneath huh. it, you know. But so they, you're not looking to win any ocean races with this boat? Oh, no. I, I want it to be dry and uh, stable. Yeah. And I think that you you get a lot of stability out of the shape because you have these really long, straight, heeled water lines. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and the, the boats with the, the scow-bowed uh, minis, they don't broach as bad as the pointy-bowed ones huh. because they're not searching all the time for where that bow's going. And they're just pushing a kind of a big mush of water. And uh -huh. when you watch these high performance ones like the class 40s they're going they're doing 20 22 knots and there's no water on the deck and this was why the 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 first scow bow he said well i went faster because i was more rested and i was drier and and i could trust my boat to keep tracking when it was going fast under autopilot and i didn't broach as much and so there were a lot of advantages. So, wow. if, plus you have so much more space all the way to the bow. Oh yeah, I mean the volume, and we kind of overdid it on this boat. We didn't. It's really easy to draw pictures. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to to build out the thing you draw if it's beyond, like, oh crap, this is really big. <laughs> you know, What's the length of Rosie G? It's 42 feet 42 on deck. Feet. But and it's 42 feet that feels like 55 feet, you know? I mean, yeah. this boat is huge inside. And we've just brazenly used the space. We didn't have tell Jim we wanted uh, three staterooms and two heads and, and uh, whatever, whatever. I mean, I'm sure you could have divided this boat up down below and put way more in it in terms of accommodation. Right, and but you've decided to keep it pretty open. Yeah, I mean, it's open and simple, and it's oriented around the two of us being able to manage the boat by ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, we're older, and we realize that that when you get older, you're not as nimble, and you're not as sure-footed, and you're maybe not as strong. And Well, and I want to ask Samantha. <coughs> you guys have now – we're, we're sitting here in the Emeryville Marina – You've been living aboard now for a couple of weeks. What has surprised you in terms of how it's different to actually live in this space? We used to spend a lot of time on the West Sail 42 over mm -hmm. the weekend in the harbor in, in Lahaina. We would, we would go for the weekends. And what surprises me the most about this boat is the stability. It mm. is so solid. We get a lot of traffic out in front here. The boats leaving the marina and coming back in, and it's the prop boats, the huge, you know, ferry boats and things like that. And when they go by, then a few minutes later, maybe you know, a couple seconds later, we get the slapping on the on the Rosie, mm -hmm. the the waves the slap on Rosie yeah. on the transom. And you look out the window, and there's no movement. But the boats around you are rocking, I imagine. Yeah, but there is yeah. no movement. It's Pretty it's solid. so solid. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that Jim always said is that Rosie doesn't roll, and I believe him because she just when, – when we launched her, we had eight people get on the boat and travel around the little marina there before we went to the fuel dock. And with the eight people getting on the boat, there was no rocking of any kind. There was no movement of any kind. Wow. 
people getting on and off the so boat. The Nothing. The rig only weighs 250 pounds above the deck. We'll talk about the rig. So e even lying in bed at night, you know, we used to have movement on Cornelia. We don't have any movement. And y we know that we're on the water, but it's just completely... It's true. We're sitting here. There's, there's the no... All, I can see this bag of lemons swinging back and forth, but if it wasn't swinging, I wouldn't be able wouldn't to tell you there wasn't any, any no, movement. No, no. Yeah. So it's very solid, Yeah. which is a great feeling to have. So... Barry, I understand you have had traffic here astern, including... A whale. <laughs> a whale. Tell me this story. Yeah. I, d I don't know if I believe this yet. Well, you can, you can verify it with the neighbors because their <laughs> boat got hit too. But we were just sitting here in the doghouse at the table after breakfast and having a conversation. And all of a sudden, the boat... There was this huge noise, and the whole boat lurched and shook, and everything inside rattled that could rattle. And Your own personal earthquake. It was like, holy cow, what just happened? You know, was there some kind of explosion? or We, we had no idea. And I went out the door, and the little girl next door, she said, oh, there's a whale right here, you know, and then it hit their boat. And then it went out and blew right off our transom. So we know it was a whale and the mud wow. was all stirred up underneath and lucky it was high tide. We don't know if it did anything to the bottom. Right. We're going to get a diver next week and uh, have a look. Wow. But it was the real thing. We got hit by a whale in the harbor. As I said before, much better to be hit in the harbor than out at sea. Oh, yeah. But um, it, it, was, it was shocking. But Rosie thinks that because she looks like a whale, mm, that mm -hmm. maybe the whale thought mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that there's this cute, that. cute girl here in here <laughs> was just coming by to say hello. That's not far fetched. This boat does, at least from the top sides, yeah, resemble a whale. <laughs> <laughs> so Barry, you were saying earlier that one of the reasons that she doesn't move a lot is that she doesn't have a lot of weight aloft. Um, yeah. Which is because of the carbon fiber mast, but also a very unique rig. And again, this is something that you envisioned way back when, right? Yeah, well, my, my career uh, as a sailmaker, I started here in the Bay Area and made sails for dinghies. And then when we got to Hawaii, I, I got into having a real sail loft and working with uh, charter boats and stuff. And then a storm wrecked all the boats, and we lost customers, mm. and boom, we're in the windsurfing business all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. It was just happy accident. Yeah. So my entire career uh, of sail design and sail making was making these toys. When we were racing, our goal was to have a 10-meter rig with every part, and it weighed less than 10 kilos. That's wow. 22 pounds. So every single bit of your thinking is all, can I make it lighter? Can I make it lighter? Can I make it? How, how does that lightness work for you? You know, When we started thinking about the junk rig, well, the junk rig's a pretty simple thing. And, and what people tend to think of when they think of junk rigs is these kind of clumsy old boats and heavy spars and, and lots of uh, ropes everywhere and... But mostly just old and clunky and heavy. Yeah. And 
I had done a lot of research on junk rigs and read everything I could read and looked on the web and looked at videos and and you know there were some really beautiful junk rigs with sails that set really nicely that looked more this is this is aerodynamic as well as whatever you know and I could see the reasoning behind it so it made really good sense to me that well, you're just going to make it all as light as you can possibly make it. And and the way that a junk rig loads is all loose and soft. There's no tension in it anywhere. I mean, huh. you, you pull the sail up, and it's hanging there by its weight, but you don't crank some winch and stretch it all out. It's just hanging there kind of loose. And the sheets come from the the leech so all the sheeting is from the leech, not, not from the boom. And then all this tension in the sail, the sheets just go and take the load more directly, but it's all spread out over six points. Huh. So the loads, I mean, I don't know this yet from my own experience with this boat, but I feel like it's going to be soft. Uh-huh. You know, the whole thing's going to be soft. And... I've imagined a sheeting set up with three travelers where I can control the way the leech tension looks and and make the twist the way I want it. I'm imagining that I can use really low RPMs on my motor and and set the sail in weird ways that will develop apparent wind so that you can kind of apparent wind sail with low power input. Uh-huh. And the sail itself, with the battens and the spars, will weigh less than 120 pounds. Wow. All the sheets and everything. And the mast only weighs 250 pounds above the deck. Are the sheets are, are the sheets spectra? Or the yeah, it's all, you know, synthet- yeah. uh, super modern, light, yeah. whatever. There'll be low-friction rings and, yeah. and, you know... Six millimeter spectra breaks at like eight thousand pounds or something. I mean, you're right. never gonna. I'm never gonna see that ever. It's. Uh, I'm not even concerned about. And it's unstayed. It. Yeah, and it's totally unstayed. So you have a halyard, and topping lifts, and then there's some little control lines that are built onto the sail. And <laughs> I'm laughing because and that's I, it. I just went sailing. On uh, an Ingrid 38, which was your previous one of your right. previous boats, catch rigged, and there were so many lines. That's yeah. the, that was my main impression. There were two headsails, and then the mainsail and the right. mizzen, and we just had we were two rows of reefs. We were drowning in, in lines yeah. back in the cockpit, and this yeah. is going to be the opposite. Yeah, well, there'll be just there'll be a halyard and a sheet. I love it. And and then these little there's two topping lifts, but they basically don't get adjusted very much. And yeah, and uh, there's these parallel lines. There's a line that kind of secures the head spar to the mast when the sail's up, and that's okay. just to pull it tight, and it's done. And then there's a couple of other ones that are the same thing that are just. Snug them up and, and they're done. But I have to ask. Um, but all low tension. Now, for your years designing windsurfing sails, why not a wishbone boom? 
and it was just more than necessary. And it didn't. It's the same thing. You need tension then. Yeah. Right. Like, like uh, the Derek Bayless was in to uh, Berkeley Marine Center, and they pulled the mainmast because the track that's up the back of the spar was uh-huh. getting ripped off where the head of the sail was attached when the sail was reefed. And so they had to figure out how to fix all the broken bolts in this track in this 85-foot-long mast. This Derek M. Bayless is a really interesting uh, Yeah, it's yeah, a double, double, you know, it's a, I don't know what you would call it. It has a large sail forward and a small sail aft. And, okay. And uh, Both wishbone? Both wishbone, yeah. Okay. And and then a track system on the back of the mast, but it's fully unstayed, and you know that mast was like twenty years old or more, and yeah. looked in great shape. So, yeah. I mean, the principle of having an unstayed rig is makes total sense, and you know you're not racking your boat. You're you build whatever structure the mast is set in, and and that takes the load and that's it you're not attaching wires and trying to torque the hull and it's a different thing you know when i talk about low tension i'm not just talking about rig tension i'm talking about like psychological tension talk more about that what do you mean well when you're sailing a boat and it's your boat and you maintain it you know, and you're out in the channel and it's blowing 25 and the boat's charging to weather doing six knots and there's a lot of push, push and that kind of thing and you're heeled way over. Well, that rig is under a lot of load. I mean, every wire, everything, every single bit of that rig depends on hundreds of individual little parts not failing. And you have to put that out of your mind. If you thought about that every time you sheeted in and started sailing, <laughs> all those little parts. You'd only go downwind. Yeah, even then. <laughs> you're still loading up something that's holding your mast up. <sighs> and so the idea of having the mast just supported, which makes perfect sense. And, I, you know, I used to sail all kinds of dinghies that had freestanding rigs. You know, right. I mean, Finn dinghy, OK dinghy, El Toro. All of them, you know, they just got the mast and the partners and the sunfish per unstayed. That works perfectly good, you know. So why do you think it hasn't? I mean, there's the freedom, the non-such. There aren't that many production boats that have unstayed masts. Well, none of them have junk rigs. Hmm? Okay. And there's problems that come from the various means of setting a sail on an unstayed mast if you don't have a junk rig. And, and a junk rig is balanced on the mast. Because some of the sail is yeah, in front uh, of the Up mast. to 15% yeah. of the sail can be in front of the mast. Like this boat has a balanced rudder. 15% of the area of the rudder is in front of the axis point. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes the boat easier to steer because mm-hmm. it, it's not just a barn door. It's a balanced thing. And the same way with your sail. You know, when your sails, when you're off the wind and your sail's not just hanging off the mast, it's hanging from the mast and balanced a little bit, that cuts down your possibilities of jibing and it makes your jibing softer because sure. of the way the mass wow, rotates yeah. around the mass yeah, the sail rotates that. around the mass you've got a counterbalance yeah and so you know there's a lot of elements i mean 
I, I reading a James Nichter uh, book called Rascals in Paradise, and one of the rascals was this Chinese uh, pirate, and he had a fleet of 900 junks. And, and these junks were warring against uh, the Portuguese and uh, who had made their way over to that part of the world. And the junks were just sailing circles around these Portuguese barks and whatever other kind of boats they had. And, you know, they were far superior. And so there's something about this, which I haven't figured out yet or experienced. Samantha that, just brought in a, a great model here of Rosie G with a, a junk rig sail. And so we can actually visualize it. I wish, I wish people who are listening could see this. But did you build this in order to get yeah, some idea so of the rig? so I could f look at it and study it and watch it jibe and swing around. And, uh -huh. you know, it, it, it's really given us a lot of ideas. Well, what do we have to do to make this go? And, mm -hmm. and as I was coming you can't aboard... can the cabin around on the real boat. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, you can <laughs> rearrange cabins. Um, <coughs> as I was coming aboard tonight, I said to Samantha, what's that big box on the yeah. on the house? And she said, that's the same. Anyway, so. watching that thing set in the wind and twist, and <laughs> I just know that what I have learned as you know, world speed record designer and world ch racing champion designer and whatever, what I learned doing that, I'm going to translate that to this because there's a lot of other ideas within the sale itself that could really uh, be, you know, applicable to yeah. normal sailing. Well, know. I am, s I mean, we, we spoke before the hull existed and now we're speaking on the boat that we were talking about before you've taken her sailing about how she's going to handle so i'm so excited to have a third conversation with you after you've taken her for sea trials and well you get to come along i hope so i would yeah. love i can't wait i've never sailed on a junk rig and I, i'm well, fascinated I either <laughs> <laughs> well i hope but you have more experience with sail design than, than i for sure and almost anybody in the world so i i i'm just fascinated by how your ideas are going to translate into the reach actual behind sail. you right there mm -hmm. grab that yeah this is so a this wing is also an inspiration of right? a of some sort of bird. It's an it's a it's an an owl. An it's owl. a Hawaiian owl. Wow. They call them pueo. And uh, Fred Haywood found this owl injured and dead on the side of the road, and uh -huh. he took the wings and he kept them one for him and gave me one. And he said, "I want sails that look like this." That's fabulous. So. Um, you know, it does look just like a, a sail when you you hold it up you know? against the the model you have, and it, yeah, it's astounding. Makes you realize how much sailboats are just a reconstruction of what nature has already yeah, done. And, and the Chinese, I mean, people don't understand how sophisticated Chinese navigation was. They just don't. There's no real history that's being taught to anybody that says, hey, the Chinese were roaming all over the planet 1,500 years ago or more. They had fleets of junks. They had junks that had 700 passengers 
with 10 masts and they were huge and they plied all over Asia and West Africa, East Africa and everywhere. I mean, there's records of them. They may have been, who knows where they were, you know, exploring around. And in, I believe it was around 700 AD, there was a a, um, change of emperorship Mm -hmm. in China. And at that time, the previous empire had this huge fleet of junks that was commanded by this eunuch admiral. And they were everywhere, all over. And they had astral navigation and they knew astronomy and they were they had cartography and they kept logs and they they knew what they were doing you know and he had all this stuff and there was records well this emperor this paranoid emperor called back the entire fleet and burned every ship and destroyed everything and I, I uh. think he killed all the sailors, too. Just completely destroyed any means of anybody in China knowing anything about the outside world or approaching the outside world. So, you know, you think about that. 1,500 years ago, we lost this wealth of thinking about ocean navigation and sailing. And... They imitated nature. I mean, you look at that and you look at this and you think, well, they were thinking about how that all worked in in the most natural way. Yeah, It was unsuspended and, and controlled in a way that was completely opposite of everything that developed in Western thought, you know. It's just like, where did the point on the front of boats come from? <laughs> I mean, can you, could you tell me who put the point on first? I don't know. I guess it's just this thought that you have to cut into the water. Well, as how opposed long to... has that been around? Yeah. I, d- I mean, I can you idea. go back and historically find the point where all of a sudden boats were sharp on the front? Probably 150 years ago, maybe. Maybe less. I, I don't really know. Yeah. But, you know, before, boats always had a pretty bluff bow, you know. Even the record-setting clipper ships, they were quite yeah. bluff-bowed, yeah. you know. Oh. Well, what what did that do? That made a ship that had long, straight water lines. I mean, this boat has 41-foot water line. When, when you look at the heeled water lines of this, like at the waterline drawings, mm-hmm. it's amazing. I mean, how straight and clean they are and uh it's it's like looking at a catamaran or something healed you know and the water line that's actually being presented when the boat heels over has quite a nice looking bow shape and it's very straight and it'll be really interesting to see what that looks like under power the bow just pushes this mush of water and and you see these two little trails of bubbles going out, and the wake is flat. Well, you told me, well, you have an electric motor on this boat yeah. at very at only half throttle. You were doing well, a little more than half throttle. We were doing five and a half to yeah. six knots, so right. not bad. That's pretty good. Yeah, and and, we and I think it's going to be fascinating to see how people react to it when it's out there on the water and they see this junk rigged scow bow 
red boat. With an eight-foot-tall dog on the top panel of the sail. <laughs> the Rosie G. So <laughs> Rosie G is the namesake of the boat, and yep. she was... She was a red cloud Kelpie. Yeah. That, well, let's let let Samantha tell oh, okay. a little bit because I know yeah. Rosie G is close to Samantha's heart, both of yours. But Rosie G was a red cloud Kelpie from Western mm-hmm. Australia, and she came into my life um, 16 years ago when she was six weeks old, and I didn't know anything about Kelpies, but I found out very quickly they're highly intelligent. They're working cattle dogs. Um, they've probably linked to the dingo. Um, she had yellow eyes and this red fur and just was her own personality and, and energy. And when Barry and I connected personally, I said, if you want me to move to Maui, you have to come over and meet her because I'm not moving to Maui if she doesn't like you. <laughs> so he came to Western Australia and met her, fell in love with her, and we moved to Maui. So she came over when she was two. Um, she had a very strong personality. Yeah. Um, and was very tenacious in her desire to herd anybody and anything, anytime. And she, has, she was a working dog. And she gave Barry her, her stamp of approval? Uh, yes, she did. And, and now she, her stamp of approval, her paw. Her head on my pillow. Oh. Straight away, yeah. She said, yes, I'm here. <laughs> you can get used to it. <laughs> and one of the little touches I love that you guys put was, was Rosie G's actual paw prints. Her paw prints are, are on, the, on boat. the boat. And when she passed away two years ago, she um, we took her ashes, and she's in the very front of the hull mm. underneath the brass panel, the brass plate. And then also her bones and her her ashes are in the keel. Oh, so she's very much her part of the boat. Her spirit truly imbued. Oh, very her much, boat, very much. But it's truly imbued with her spirit. Yeah, it's dog love. Yeah. It's dog love. <laughs> dog yes. love. That's wonderful. Dog and boat love, two of the two best things in the world. Yeah. So, Barry, um, with this project almost to fruition, I know you are always scheming and thinking of new things. I want to hear what's on your mind these days. Well, I've been working with an old friend who is one of the top experts in titanium forming. Uh-huh. And he worked for years for McDonnell Douglas in development of of this titanium forming process. So he and I were talking to Cree and uh the enabler. And Cree said Oh, you know, San Francisco Bay, you know. What what we really need in San Francisco Bay is is a boat that's can go in real shallow water cuz San Francisco Bay is shallow everywhere, you know. The average depth is like 6 feet or less, you know, hmm. in the whole bay. Yeah, if you go down the south yeah, bay, I mean, or if Richardson's it wasn't bay. dredged, ships wouldn't need be able to go anywhere. So, um he said, "Yeah, you know, I'm thinking of how great it would be if you could have a shallow water craft that could go and open up a lot of transportation around here so Mm -hmm. we just started thinking about that and well how can you make a thing that's pretty fast and comfortable and so this idea has evolved and evolved and we've involved a lot of max's old friends retired boeing engineers who have great specialties 
And uh, we've developed uh, what we think is going to be a pretty interesting high-speed surface craft and unique. And so we're just moving forward all the time. I mean, we put an hour a day at least into collaboration and... Now that I'm sitting around with my foot wrecked, I'm spending a lot more time than that. <laughs> so you, what, tell, what's the story here? You slipped well, off I just the boat? I slipped on, uh, you know, the boat doesn't have non-skid in it in a lot of places. Oh. And I just hit the stair. Two stairs. Two you stairs. Know, I hit that step and I just went down on the next You step. made a very conscious effort to make this boat very accessible. I mean, from the cockpit to this beautiful salon here, the port, the, 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 um, what the doghouse. The doghouse. Yeah. Thank the doghouse. How could I forget the the Rosie G doghouse? Doghouse. That's right. <laughs> From the cockpit to the doghouse, you know, you don't even. You just have to step over this little ledge. Yeah. But the, the two steps on the boat, you managed to step on. Yeah, I on. managed to to. You know, it was just one of those inattentive things, and I had uh, socks on, which yeah. because it's always cold. dangerous on a boat. And, and all right. <laughs> I have to step in here for a minute. Yes. Um. Barry spent over 3,000 hours in a little over 12 months, took 11 days off during that period of time. He was doing 10-hour wow. days every day for 12 months. And we got here on the 1st, and he slept for a few days, and then he said, well, I'm going to start doing this and this and this and this and this. And I told him, I said, at some point, your body's going to want payback. Yeah, this is it. And, and the universe went, all right, if you're not going to stop, we're going to stop you. <laughs> and we have two <laughs> steps on this boat, two House steps to get from the doghouse down below. Two. It's easy. And he slipped on one of them. And it's put him off his feet. We're now at day 12. And he's actually resigned himself to the fact that he's now on holiday. And he gets to look out and just, you know, observe the boats going by. That's and I truly believe in that. My wife was at her wit's end when her back said no more and threw itself out when she's sneezed getting out of bed and it's never been the same since but yes your body's telling you to relax a little bit <laughs> yeah. so in the beginning i was upset and I'm sure it was angry. like going yeah. through the stages of grief you know i bet at the at when the moment when it happened the way it hurt i knew oh god you are screwed man you are at the out on the dock and the shower is up there, and the laundry, and the toilets, and everything, and you can't even walk across your cabin, and what are you going to do? So this has been uh, uh, a period of acceptance and adaptation, and because I got injured, or injured myself, or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, we didn't get the galley finished, and so we're camping in here. We have coolers instead of our refrigerator, and we can't. We don't have a sink that drains in the galley, so we have to wash dishes in a bucket, and and it's camping, you know. Which will make you appreciate it all the more. Oh yeah. When and I'm sure it's not that long from now. When oh, it's, it's waiting over there in the corner. <laughs> all the it. pieces are but all cut. But we did manage to have a <laughs> wonderful meal. It's not the. It's not the plumbing, and it's not the refrigeration that makes the, the atmosphere. That's so. right. Exactly. And I told Barry, life is about lessons. And one of the wonderful things about life is that 
no matter how old you are, you keep getting lessons. And this whole exercise has been a lesson for Barry in patience yeah. and understanding that you have to take a quiet time yeah. to just regroup and, 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 and reorganize yourself and your mind and your head and your, and your body. For me, it was a lesson in adaptation. Okay. Because he can't do anything. And so it was important that I was able to keep the system running but adapting to not having a kitchen sink and not having, um, you know, things that were available to me. But it works. We are in paradise here. We love Safe Harbor. Emeryville, it is the best place in the world. And we just, we, we love it. And I am so happy and grateful that we're here. When I talked to you on the phone a couple weeks ago, Samantha, you said, I think we've died and gone to heaven because yeah. we wake up every morning and we look out. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you know, if you're going to hurt your foot, what a great place to be. Yeah. He doesn't have to go anywhere. He's even had a shower in the cockpit with <laughs> hot water because <laughs> we, put, we put the little hot water thingy up on the on the. You didn't have to do that for me, Barry. What's better than a black So, you know, life is good, and we're grateful for every moment of it. Well, I love the attitude. That's, it's so important to keep that. Adaptation. Adaptation and that outlook through the ups and downs. What haven't we talked about that either one of you want to touch on? Dream. Don't give up your dreams and let your life take over. If you have a dream, go for it. You know, dreams are so important, and so many people go through their entire life dreaming and never achieving. And Barry turned 76 in July. I turned 73 in May. And... You know, every once in a while we go, I think we're old, but are we? <laughs> and we don't give up dreaming. We keep dreaming. Uh, and, and it's so important to, to fulfill those dreams. Don't, don't give up ever, ever. It, okay. Life's too short, and there's too much to do. And, and if you're not having fun, Barry said, if you're not having fun, don't do it. Yeah. What great advice. What great advice. Yeah, if there was one thing I could say that, that was a project that, that I would promote, it's uh, this thing we dreamed up called Baleen. And, uh, I think we talked a yeah, little bit about Baleen last time. If you go to my website, it's still there now. On my website, it's right up in front now. Okay. And I've actually read in some forum comment in some website that I follow, somebody just blurted out that dream. Well, why don't we have ships that go around and pick up all the plastic and turn it into energy? And I thought, well, that's that's a really, you know, if there's one other person that's had that idea, then that idea is out there and it's circulating around and and it's going to get manifested. The, the more people that go, oh, well, that's a pretty good idea. That's a good idea. And if you look at what we put together, it just makes total logical sense. And, you know, I've involved myself with some people in Europe that have an energy project that's mind-blowing. And part of their thing is, oh, we want to do this baleen thing that that you dreamed up you know because they think they're going to be you know rolling in dough pretty soon so and the quick in the uh, we have so 
how do you quickly tell people if you had, you know, the elevator pitch of what baleen is? We talked about it in the last okay, time. Okay, so baleen are are 250-foot catamaran ships that have a big uh, conveyor belt tongue out in front of them that's just picking up stuff at various depths. You know, you'd start with the shallow depths first and pick up the big floating stuff, and then later on you'd refine it to where you were going deeper and picking Plastic up. trash in the ocean. Yeah, all mm-hmm. in the trash gyres. And those ships would have... All the everything on board to process that material and turn it into energy. So you could micronize the plastic and gasify it and store it in in the case of these larger ships, you could have these sand batteries like the guys I'm working with in Europe. Mm. You know, there's a battery available that uses sand as the primary element. So you store the energy as from heat. the gasification as, as heat, heat. Yeah. and take it back to shore. Well, or you could make it like uh, other electric ships could come and power up. Power up. That they could be floating um, power stations. And these ships would just run on a GPS grid going around in the plastic gyres scooping up all the plastic like baleen and whales you know that's why we named it baleen and and then uh, you could also now it's very possible not very possible it's an actual fact that one kilogram of plastic can turn into one liter of diesel fuel and there are six plants in the united states now that are doing that so why not put that same plastic to oil refinery right on board the ship and just convert the plastic straight to diesel and store it on the ship. (laughs) So we could be going out there and harvesting literally trillions of dollars worth of energy that's in the form of this floating plastic waste. Yeah. And, And it's I, I have a friend that's in the shipbuilding business. He said, I'll build you a ship like that for $10 million. So you think, because it's so focused, right? It's not going to do anything else. It doesn't have to go fast. It just has to get out there and go along at a couple of knots and, and, Suck up and, the and gather up this stuff. He says, this is just a big f- platform, basically. And he said, no problem. So you think, $10 million. I mean... Jesus, we just gave $13 billion to a country halfway around the world for some reason. $10 million, It's just nothing. I mean, Bill Gates or Larry Ellison or any of those guys could just write a check and make something like this happen. The but idea has to just have a garner enough attention and enough yeah, support. I mean, every ship could be named. You could have the, uh, what do we call them, um, ships that scour the seas. STSS, ships that scour the seas. They would be the STSS Dow Chemical, the SSTS Amazon, the whatever. You could get corporate Naming sponsorship. Rights, yeah. And they would be out there competing with each other to see who could restore the most ocean. And it's a gold mine. And, and, it's, and a it's a gold, gold mine. mine. Yeah. It could pay for itself, you know. And you think, okay, what does it take to get that idea out in front of somebody that has extra cash, you know, and, and how many men on the planet now have that kind of money? I mean, Elon Musk, 
he has a hundred billion dollars and uh you know he, he just sells off a bunch of stock for six billion dollars well a tiny por- portion of that would fund a ship like this well let's if get... you built one then there would be two and there would be three right I can even imagine where, since there's no law out there, it would become almost uh, pirates, pirates trying, yeah. going out and Everybody organizing competing. their own thing to round up all the energy and oil and money that's gold there. Rush. Yeah, the plastic gold rush. Plastic gold rush. I could rush. see it. I could see so it. So that, that's my major, like, oh, God, if something could happen that I dreamed of. Well, if that you're interested, a, you can go to Barry's site, which is? BarrySpanier.com. BarrySpanier.com and learn about the Bailey Project and get in touch with Barry and help him make it happen. That's right. Exactly. It's just not a big deal. You know, you could go to a university like University of California. They have a naval architecture department. You could get students to design these ships and they could be built in American shipyards with American steel, and they could take students on board and have laboratories and do ocean observation, and the whole thing could all be self-funding once you get it rolling, you know? It's just going to start turning that plastic into diesel fuel or electricity, and it's an amazing dream, but to me, it seems perfectly rational and possible. I love it. I just don't have 10 million bucks in my back pocket. (laughs) Well, I got a dream. You got to follow those dreams because all these fantastic ideas started with with a dream. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Samantha. I always adore talking to you both. So it's been a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ben. We really appreciate your time. As always, I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. You can find more info about the Baleen Project that Barry was just talking about at barryspanier.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-S-P-A-N-I-E-R. And you can follow the progress on Rosie G at reddogyachts.com. Thanks for listening. Drop me a line at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. Or find me on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing. Until next time, smooth sailing.